Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest for this episode is author Catherine McNeil. Catherine and I connected with one another through Twitter when she posted about Lucy Shaw writing the foreword for her recent book entitled All Shall Be Well, which happened to be the very same day that I had the privilege of interviewing Lucy for this podcast of the obvious same title. With Catherine's writing and work entwining with our purpose of helping women in academia experience the hope and restoration of Christ, we couldn't help but have her on the podcast to talk about her book, All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World. In addition to Catherine's writing and speaking, she has an MA in Human Services Counseling and has taught courses at Judson University in Illinois. As you'll hear throughout the interview, Catherine is one who seeks to find God's creative, redemptive work in each and every day, while also caring for three kids, two jobs, and one enormous garden. Well, thanks so much, Catherine, for being on the podcast today. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing about your educational background and how that has influenced who you are today? Absolutely. And thank you for having me on today. I'm grateful to be here. Well, I am not working in academia, but I've always thrived in academic environments. I have a master's degree. I have taught as an adjunct occasionally, and I'm never more at home intellectually and spiritually and socially than when I'm attending a theology conference or an academic conference just for fun. So Mm -hmm. I feel that even though my life path has not allowed me to pursue academia as a career. It's definitely a place where I feel at home. There are several graduate programs that are permanently saved to my bookmarks. (laughs) Nice. If the door ever opens, I will be right there with you. But you've already uh, earned a master's and I do a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that. Sure. I got a uh, master's degree in human services counseling, which I have not used very much directly, but it has opened many other doors for me in my career. Great. As a first year graduate student, if you can remember, I don't know how long ago that was for you. If you could tell yourself today, give yourself a piece of advice for your first year self, because a lot of people are starting up grad school, you know, right now, this season. Yeah. What advice would you offer? Oh man, I think this may not even be touching on what you're asking, but I think I would say go for it and enjoy this season as hard as it is because it's worth it. And the degree that you're getting, whether you use it directly or indirectly in the future, is going to open doors that you wouldn't have otherwise. And it will be harder to find a way to do it later. Whatever season of life you may be in, if you have found a way to open the door, go for it is I think what I would say. But keep breathing, keep sane, and do what you have to do to survive in the midst of it all. Yeah, keep breathing is always good advice for anyone, (laughs) anywhere. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, can you say a little bit too about then your spiritual background and how that has shaped who you are, as well as your current vocation? Absolutely. Well, I'm grateful to have been born to parents who were not only devoted Christians, they were also in ministry. And in fact, 
related to your previous question, I was born the day before my dad started seminary. Oh, wow. So <laughs> the family joke is that he was counseled not to begin graduate school and a family at the same time. And so he took that advice and uh, gave it a day of space in between. <laughs> nice. So I don't think that's what they meant. But um, I think that learning and living with my parents who were both spiritually focused, but also theologically focused. But uh, my dad was a pastor in dairy farm country and cornfield country. And so the big lofty ideas and theologies that they loved and that I loved were always taking place right in the ground, right in the cycles and seasons of nature and inside of communities that deeply relied on the weather and the time of day. I think that really did shape a lot of how I see both the truths of God, the the special revelation and the general revelation always intermingled together, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that that shows up in your book. And we'll talk about that more a little bit later, the idea of the seasons and gardening and well, farming too then, right? So Yeah. So share a little bit then about what you're doing now for vocationally. Well, I am a writer. I do a lot of different kinds of writing. Probably my favorite kind is the book writing. I've just recently released my second book, which is called All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World. I also do a lot of freelance writing, which often looks like writing Bible studies or devotions, articles. And then I also have a part-time job where I do copywriting and Uh, donor development writing for a nonprofit. So I do all kinds of writing, but I am a writer by trade. Nice. And then you're also a mother, right? I mean, I I am from the book. So yes, I have three children. They are eight, 10 and just turned 13. So I'm now a mother of a teenager. Yikes. (laughs) Or maybe not yikes. I don't know. I'm not there yet. So, (laughs) Well, so far so good, but we're only one month in. (laughs) Great. So you're balancing work as a writer and then family life. So as you mentioned, you just released your second book, All Shall Be Well. And what led you to writing this particular book? I think that this book is a result of all the awareness and observation that I've been doing my whole life. Like I said before, I tend to have one foot or one half of my brain in theology and history and science. Uh, I love to study. I love to read. But another one really committed to being on the ground, literally on the ground. I love to garden. I love to hike, to explore a forest preserve, or really be paying attention to the earth that God created. And as I also kind of referred to earlier, we spend a lot of time at least in the theological circles that I feel so at home in. We spend a lot of time discussing and arguing different concepts and doctrines of special revelation in the Bible, and I love that, I do. But I think in the process, in some ways, we've all but shut out this universe that God made that is trembling with God's general revelation. And I feel so committed to bringing the two together because as they taught me in my undergrad, all truth is God's truth. And I want us to open our eyes to what's going on in the world that God made. Christians specifically believe that God created the world intentionally and purposefully and that creation itself is proclaiming God's glory and truth. 
And since humans learn best through repetition, I am always wondering, what did God intend us to learn in all the repeating cycles and seasons that he made on this earth? Hmm. Yeah, and so those cycles and seasons show up in your book, right? And how would you say that those metaphors, I mean, they're metaphors, but they're also real life of gardening and seasons. Can you share a little how those weave throughout your own life? Yeah, absolutely. I have organized the book in seasons from spring to summer to fall to winter. And then I look at different physical things that are happening, whether it's thawing or abundance or leaves falling or snow falling or wilderness and reflect on what lessons God might be teaching us during this repetitive occurrence in nature or else what might he be feeding us through this particular cycle that repeats or this season. I am a gardener. I do love to garden. Like I said, I love to be in the forest or in any kind of ecosystem where things are growing. And I find that at least for the way I process information, there is so much in creation that is a microcosm of our own life experiences, but they're happening where we can touch them. It's like a lab. We can play around with these things that we have to grapple with and have such a hard time grappling with in our own lives. The growth from new life out of seemingly nothing, growing towards maturity and fullness and all the chaos that comes with that. And then ultimately the decline, the letting go of something that was wonderful entering into something that is unknown and even facing death. I think if we pay attention to these ongoing cycles that repeat themselves on a daily or annual basis in our yards and in the world around us, I think at least I am better prepared for these seasons when I meet them in my own life. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it reminds me as you were talking of, there's a lovely song by Andrew Peterson I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's, I think the title is The Rain Keeps Falling. There's a line in it that says it's about gardening, but it's actually a song about depression and sort oh. of overcoming it or having God's presence come near you in the midst of it, in the midst of darkness. And the line that my young daughter and I always sing it together, it starts out, my daughter and I put the seeds in the dirt and every day now we keep watching the earth for signs of new life that give way to new birth or something like that. And the rain keeps falling. And then, then it talks about like the seed needing to die to come to life and you're waiting and waiting for it to happen. Anyway, what you were sharing reminded me so much of that, how like, yeah, that gardening piece or the way that God has created the earth and designed it is really also the way he interacts with us or yes. how our lives play it out. So yeah, anyway, that song came to mind. Oh, I love that. I don't think I know that song, but I will assure you I'll be looking it up as soon as I can. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's lovely. Anyway, so shifting gears a little, we connected on Twitter somewhat serendipitously uh, back in May, I think it was. The very same day I interviewed, or had the privilege, I should say, to interview Lucy Shaw for this podcast named All Shall Be Well. And then you had posted on Twitter that Lucy Shaw had written the foreword for your book, obviously of the same title. So two questions related to that coincidental connection. The quote by St. Julian of Norwich that we both enjoy, 
all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. For me, it brings a lot of comfort, right? And the acknowledgement, both that things aren't as they should be yet, but that Christ has come to yes. bring restoration and wholeness. And for this uh, particular podcast, you know, it, it's about that we believe that Christ is coming to bring restoration and wholeness, particularly for women in the university setting. In what way does the quote resonate with you? And how did you end up landing on that for the title of, of your book? Well, I've always loved this quote like you mentioned. And I love the context of when she wrote this. Julian had been ill for an incredibly long time, deeply ill, and she believed herself to be on her deathbed, although she did eventually recover. And it was in this darkest moment of her personal life that she received this revelation from God that in fact all shall be well. And it is so meaningful to me that it wasn't on a beautiful sunny day as she was looking out over the ocean that she received this revelation, but as she was lying on what she believed to be her deathbed, deeply suffering. And I think that's where the hope and the truth comes from, that in a cosmic long-term sense, even when it's something we can't necessarily see right now, although I do believe we get glimpses and hints, yet somehow God gave her the ability to see, not that things were well right now or well in a way that she could wrap her arms around, but that all manner of things shall be well. And then she was able to share this with us. And that's where our, our hope comes from. And that's the ultimate message of the book that I've written, All Shall Be Well. Or at least that's what I intend for the ultimate message to be, that God is with us in the lovely and beautiful and comfortable, but he's also with us in the dark and the chaotic and the painful. There's nowhere that we can go and not find that he's here with us, that in the lovely summer sunset and in the cold, desperate, dark hours, God is here. He is right here and we can find him. That's beautiful. And, and yeah, I would say that absolutely your book does, your intent came to be because yeah. I was just describing your book this morning, actually, to a neighbor of mine at the bus stop. She said she's not a reader. And I was like, well, actually, I've been thinking of you to read this book that I read, All Shall Be Well. And it's all about, I described it to her as all about hope in the midst of pain and suffering and finding peace, even in anxiousness or... Mm -hmm or being overwhelmed. And so she's like, Oh, maybe I will read it, but I'm not a reader. But I'm like, oh, well, it's nice. Wonderful. Yeah. So we'll see. So then the second question related to our Lucy Shaw connection, as we are both readers of Lucy's work, how has her writing influenced you? Well, I love, I love her perspective on life, I think. And the way she takes creation and theology, both our simple observed reality and the deep concepts of our reality and weaves them together through poetry and shows us these things that we are always seeing, always walking through, and yet somehow we don't see them. We overlook them. I think that's what I'm trying to do also as a writer. I particularly like this quote from Lucy. She says, and I don't remember where I found this, but she says, whether we are poets or parents or teachers or artists or gardeners, we must start where we are and use what we have. In the process of creation and relationship, what seems mundane and trivial 
may show itself to be a wholly precious part of a pattern. Mm. I read recently, not from Lucy, but uh, an artist saying that he believes the work of an artist is to create something that is either so deeply reflective of reality or so absurdly in conflict with reality that it causes us to see what's always been true, always been around us, that we just got too complacent or busy to notice. And I think as a writer, that is what I'm trying to do, to show us what it is that we, that's here all along, but we need to awaken to it again, God's presence, what God is doing here. And I love the way Lucy does that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, let me say, your writing style is also really delightful in the same way Lucy's is. Even the dedication page was poetic, I thought. (laughs) And I love that you started the book with that chapter on hope, not in in an idyllic way, but with an acknowledgement of suffering as well. And you wrote, do not mistake hope for safety. Hope breaks us open. Hope is never naive to suffering, is synonymous not with optimism, but with courage. Hope knows with certainty that life overflows with both beauty and pain, and we cannot know which will rise to meet us. Can you say more about your thoughts on on hope in the midst of suffering, as well as where where you find hope? Absolutely. And I'm glad you pulled that quote out. It's one of my favorites. And I do start the book that comes from the first chapter, because it's important to me to place hope inside of our true context, our true reality, which as beautiful and joyful as it sometimes is, is also very frequently full of pain and injustice and suffering. We can easily hope when things are going well. It's easy to say, you know, I hope for this or that, but often right. that's, more like, it's, that's more like wishing. I think that true hope, that thing inside our spirits that we are clinging to and growing towards with God's help is what we cling to in the deepest, darkest times. It's what keeps us going until the dawn, until spring. We only experience real hope when there's nothing else. When we've all but lost sight of anything good or joyful or worth living for, that is where this hope of new life, hope of spring, hope of thaw can be born in us and It's such a hard place to stand, but at some point in our lives, we are all asked to stand there, I think. And I write that hope always stands side by side with despair, and only one will win out ultimately. So I think think your question was to say more on hope in the midst of suffering, and I think that that is truly the only place where hope actually exists in its native environment, is in in suffering, we hope for a new morning, for a new spring. And then where do you find hope? Like in a, in a sort of on a daily basis sort of yeah. thing. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. <laughs> I think, you know, I write a lot about the repetitions in life and you and right. listeners in academia know how well we learn through repetition. And uh, I live in the northern parts of the United States, and our winters get so long and cold. And there reaches a point where it just feels like it will never end. 
And then all of a sudden, one day, I will hear the sound of trickling water, and I will feel a slightly warm breeze, and it is the most miraculous and amazing experience for me. I will survive winter for the rest of my life in order to have this one day. It just reminds me that life is always coming back again. And I can only get that one day once a year, and I have to suffer <laughs> several months to get it. But I think on a daily basis, there is, there is that same nugget of hope, a smile from someone. I was taking an Uber, actually, from my last-minute airplane flight to my grandmother's hospital room as she was dying. And my Uber driver was the first person that I saw to tell him that my grandmother was dying. And he looked me in the eye from his rearview mirror and he said, Catherine, have courage. You can do this. And here was a perfect stranger giving me this sacred encouragement. I said to him, you know, you were a minister of the gospel to me today. And I think it's here. You know, it's just as likely that I'm going to encounter a stranger who's going to say something harmful or hurtful. I don't want to be idyllic about our experience in the world at all. But I think those nuggets are there if we are looking for them. Again, not at all downplaying how severe the suffering and injustice, but I do, I am committed to keeping my eyes open to find those smiles, those moments of eye contact with my fellow humans, moments of beauty in the world around me. And that's a beautiful story of just someone who didn't have to, but chose to offer words of hope for you and in a kind of chaotic and well I assume I travel's chaotic for me I shouldn't project that onto you but please um, do (laughs) okay and obviously like a sad time you knew this was probably the last time you would see your grandmother yes have those words offered to you by someone who didn't have to right when related then to hope you have a chapter on wonder in the book and the way in which wonder and awe can lead us to worship or perhaps it's the other way around that worship Mm. leads to wonder and awe. And it was fitting that I actually read this chapter in the midst of my family taking a whirlwind trip to Niagara Falls, which I had been to when I was like five years old, but didn't really remember much about it. And it was an absolute wonder. I was totally stunned. I mean, I felt like I was a five-year-old again. So in fact, before I left for the trip, my mom told me a story about my grandfather going to see Niagara Falls when she, when she was in college. So at this point, he was probably in his late 50s. And related to talking about the um, farm culture, my mm-hmm. granddad, he was a farmer and never really had the opportunity to ever take a vacation because who was going to milk the cows, you know? Yeah. The story goes that when he got out of the car in the parking lot and like, like Niagara Falls State Park, he could hear the falls and he started to walk really quickly toward the sound until he was like full on running, this grown adult man running like a child to see the marvel of God's creation. In our own trip, you know, we told our kids this story about great granddad going to see Niagara Falls and they got out of the car and they're like, should we run? And I'm like, no. (laughs) But anyway, and then on our, our last day, we packed everything up from the hotel I said to my husband, let's go see it one more time. And so we pay the $10, we get down there, and there's a full rainbow at the base of the falls. Oh, and I, my. I can't believe it. You know, because you see pictures of Niagara Falls with the rainbows. And then we were there the first day, there, were no, there was no rainbow, but that was okay. It was still stunning, right? And then yeah. this creation, it's not man-made, it's just 
incredible. And then to have a full rainbow, I was just like near tears about it. But anyway, so things like this certainly can bring wonder and awe, but we don't have that opportunity to take a trip to see these sort of wonders often or maybe ever. So how would you suggest cultivating this sort of wonder in daily life or, or awe even, particularly thinking about repetition or the seasons of academic context? You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally see where you're going with this. And I love that story. I have not been to the Niagara Falls, but it's always been high on my list. So maybe this will push me over the edge and I'll plan a trip. I am grateful to have had the chance to travel to many places in the world. And I've seen so many amazing wonders, the Grand Canyon, the oceans, the tall mountains. But I think most people both living now, but certainly throughout history, are more like your family member, your grandfather, who was a farmer and never could really leave home. People who deeply knew their own little corner of the earth, even though they had very little opportunity to see anything else. And I think there is an opportunity for wonder in that deep knowing that we tend to have lost now with our ability to travel. And I think about the people who lived before electricity, how every night when the sun went down, they had this universe of starry sky, totally unfiltered with light to gaze at. And that's a wonder that I can't even access now. I live in the suburbs of Chicago. I can't even see that if I want to. Our lives have been touched by birth and by death on a regular basis. My own life. I have buried my grandmother and held my brand new niece within one week of each other in this past week. I think that there is wonder, things that we can't even begin to fathom that can point us to the creator and inspire us to bow and worship or raise our arms and worship all around us. And uh, the subtitle of my book is awakening to God's presence in his messy, abundant world. And I think for me, who spends so much of my life probably in a similar routine to your academic seasons, spending so much time either driving to an office or sitting in a cubicle or working on a computer or talking with people and teaching, there is still so much creation that crosses my path if I can awaken to it, Um, like that my Uber driver that I mentioned before, or a smile of a small child, or the way my 13-year-old will reach out and squeeze my hand. That's so precious to me because I know how fleeting it is. And the snow melting, the first flowers peeking through the ground, it's all around us. So the challenge for me becomes, how can I become better at paying attention to the wonders At the end of each chapter, I give a handful of practices that I think any of us can do inside of our real life to try to cultivate that wonder, to try to awaken. One of the ones that I talk about is the prayer of examine, which Mm. was instituted long ago to help busy followers of Jesus to connect with that relationship, even in the midst of busyness. And it's simply asking us to take a moment twice a day and ask ourselves five simple questions. Where am I now? What am I doing? Where is God here? Where do I need to pour out brokenness or ask for forgiveness? Where do I need to pour out gratitude and express my thanks? And how can I remember that God is coming forward with me as I continue in my day? 
And I think that these little disciplines that we can do in the car or in the office, just as well as while sipping tea in the garden, help me to find the wonder that's always there, even when it's being obscured by the city lights. Yeah, and that's good to think about spiritual practices and the ways that those can help us to connect with God, obviously, but then to connect that's wonder about God's creation and who he is and who he's created us to be. So you also have been a chapter on wilderness and you write about how Ash Wednesday and the 40 day season of Lent has much to offer to help us connect with Jesus. In fact, I recently learned from my husband, I think it was that the most attended services at our church are actually not Christmas and Easter as one would probably expect, but instead Ash Wednesday And I can only speculate why that is, but it does make me wonder about our desire to experience Jesus in simplicity, but also in the midst of contemplating our humanity and brokenness. Can you say how you've experienced Jesus' presence in your own seasons of wilderness? Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad to know that. I think there is something so special about Ash Wednesday because it invites us to come. I love feasting. I talk in the book about how. There's a a proverb that says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And we are so drawn to feasts. We love Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we love Super Bowl Sunday and birthday parties. Mm -hmm. And I don't think if somebody sent an invitation to come, you know, spend two days in silent mourning, we would be quite as excited to accept that invitation. But so much of our life is actually spent wrestling and maybe trying to cover up and trying to compensate for these anxieties and these griefs and struggle and injustice. And I think Ash Wednesday and Lent invite us to come and just be honest about it. As I was writing this book, actually, the Ash Wednesday and Lent that coincided with my writing, I was out in my garden no surprise, clearing away that the dead foliage that has to be pulled out in the late winter so that the new growth can come up. And I was just, you know, yanking and pulling these plants that had died. And I had a realization that this was a picture of my own heart, my own spirit, that Mm. so much wilderness, I guess, had layered over the fertile ground that I needed to have it cleared away. And I remember going to the Ash Wednesday service later that day and having ashes on my forehead and then walking over to a prayer minister and saying, giving them this picture and saying, pray for me that God will remove all this wilderness that's over my spirit so that the new life can come out. I think I've talked a lot about cycles and spirals. And I remember thinking even 20 years ago that just as you learn from a small task, you get a little bit better at doing it a second time. Um, You know, we babysit as teenagers and that helps us a little bit better to have a (laughs) child, which helps us to better have two children. You know, we kind of, the challenge gets bigger as we go, whatever our task is. And I don't at all want to say that our struggles, (laughs) some people are hit by the worst struggles way too early. For me, as I have made it through a wilderness and found that God was there, that has given me that hope that there is still fertile ground underneath that I can rely on for the next time. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's not necessarily that I experience Jesus in the wilderness, although sometimes I do. Sometimes I believe he breaks through in an almost miraculous way to keep me going for just a second. It's never enough. I always want so much more. But I think it's been the decades of going through wilderness periods where it's hard to believe that God is there, but finding ultimately that he was, that Jesus was there, that God is faithful, that that's what allows me to survive the next time I go through that cycle, if that Mm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you said something like it's just a little bit at a time and and it's never quite enough. It reminded me of manna, right? And how it was just enough for that day. And the Israelites are surviving through that wilderness, that desert. Yes. um, That cycle. So daily bread. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So these little moments of, yeah, like you said, daily bread can help us connect to Jesus and Mm -hmm. uh, know that he is faithful to us. So related to that, you have a chapter entitled Toil Faithfulness, and you write about the ongoing circle of faithfulness, of others lifting us up when we're down and vice versa, and about staying faithful even in the midst of burnout, continuing to stay connected to Jesus and loving our neighbors in this obedience and faithfulness. And many of our listeners would likely resonate with this chapter as they maintain like a full career life, Mm -hmm. some raising a family, or having life pull from sort of all angles particularly burnout and easiness that it is there to become overwhelmed. If you're a grad student or a med student or even just professor or faculty, what are your thoughts on staying faithful over the long haul? Oh, what a great question. (laughs) Well, I have to confess, I'm in my early 40s, so I'm going to need a few more decades to really have uh, perfected my thoughts on staying faithful in the long haul. But is so often the case, I write about what I am wrestling with and what I'm longing for. And this certainly is of the busy season of life that I'm in. Like you're saying, I'm balancing career and family and not just my children, but parents and neighbors. And I think in this kind of 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s season of life, we are so, we're the ones with the energy to work and we're carrying so much on our shoulders and we need each other. Mm-hmm. It's hard, I think, to find the strength to keep going because the responsibilities can feel crushing. And there's not a lot of encouragement in our culture right now to fulfill your duty, to stay faithful, to keep on the course, to take an assessment maybe every 10 years and not every 10 minutes. Um, Mm. to see how you're doing. And there's so much balance there. It's hard to even discuss this because there are people who are wired to take on too much responsibility, who need to be encouraged to let it go, to sit down, to say, how am I doing and do self-care. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach, except that we so desperately need each other. We so desperately need to ask for help when we need it and offer help when it's needed and live in community with each other so that whichever deep end we are falling off on, whether it's hedonism or over, over responsibility, we can help each other to, to lift the load together. Yeah, we live in such an individualistic culture in the United States. And so often we forget about one another and 
recently, uh, we live in a cul-de-sac, which is total suburbia, right? But we were talking with someone and they were surprised that all of us knew each other, like all of the neighbors, like mm-hmm. actually, we know, and we know a lot about each other, maybe, <laughs> maybe too much. And one neighbor reflected, well, it's because all of our houses face one another, like all of our windows, whether we like it or not turn towards one another because it's in this circle, this half circle, we can see one another. We know what's going on, but we also care deeply for one another and we're checking in. How are you doing? These sorts of things. It's that that I think really helps us in dark times in our neighborhood. We've been able to be sources of strength for one another when we've needed to rely on someone else. We can't do it alone, like you were saying. But often in our culture, I would say people are very disconnected from one another, even as neighbors, not even knowing their neighbors' names, depending on, and depending on where you live and things like that too. Because I mean, I suppose if you're out in a rural area, you may not know your neighbors or maybe you do. Because I like going back to my grandfather who was a farmer, he certainly knew everyone, even though there were acres and acres and acres between him and the next, the next family. Wow. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on. No. But yeah. So then related to that, what helps you stay connected to Jesus as the source of strength as well? Well, I do love the classic spiritual disciplines of prayer and meditation and Bible study and celebration. I do also love these sort of more chaotic disciplines that I have tried to discover and practice, which I talk about in both of my books, actually ways in which I try to awaken to God's presence right here in the midst of the crazy. I have these just simplest of disciplines where breathing is one of them. You know, we have to breathe no matter how burnt out or busy we might be. We have to take a breath, inhale and exhale, and then for just a moment rest. And I find that if I can pay attention to my body doing this even once a day, it helps to remind me that I'm here, that God is here. I can use this repetitive action to focus my mind back on Jesus. Walking, I have to walk all over the place. When I actually pay attention to the rhythms of my feet pressing into the ground and coming back up again, I can use that to remind myself that I'm walking on God's earth, God's creation, that I'm in Him, and that I have my being in God's spirit, in God's world, that He is the one sustaining me. So I do try to awaken myself in ways that can be done in my chaotic schedule, because as much as I love those snatches of 30 minutes of silence, they can be hard to come by. And you know, I think part of it is a mental game too. We really have been taught to find God in the silence. But as I write about in this book, and frankly, in my first book as well, if God created this world of babies and families and jellyfish and mosquitoes. He didn't intend us to sit around in silent reflection all the time. God created an abundant world full of chaos and cacophony and noise and hungry tummies. And I think he is absolutely able to be found in the chaos of our routines just as well as in the quiet places, even though as an introvert, it's harder for me to believe that or step into that. I know that God is in the messy, abundant world he made. And so you've mentioned your first book a couple times, but can you share the title? Yes. My first book is Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline. 
and I take a look at how many of the spiritual disciplines and practices that we are taught are incompatible with a lifestyle of waking up at 2 and at 4 and at 6 (laughs) a.m. or balancing small children's needs with our own needs and our work needs and how the sacrifices and the struggles and the joys of being a parent can be themselves doorways to God's presence, even when we don't have the quiet or the time for a quiet time. Great. So many days of small things. Long yeah. days. Long, long days well, of they are. small things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there are many of them. <laughs> there were many days, long days. Yes. Cool. And then of small things, yes. which sort of is, could be a segue into stranger things. Oh, so yes. Stranger things. Anyway, so because I follow you on Twitter and that's where we connected, I know that recently you've been watching Stranger Things. You maybe took a break, though, in your recent travels and with your grandmother's death. Yes. But I feel like we should chat about Stranger Things since you've been tweeting about it. And <laughs> it's totally off topic, but also fun. And a lot of people have been watching it. So you were at first hesitant to jump on the bandwagon and then you did. What are your thoughts so far and how far along are you? And maybe, maybe there will be spoilers. So spoiler alert. Right. Probably not much in the way of spoilers. I have completed the whole first season, but I have not gotten any further than that. So I'm very behind. Hesitant is putting it mildly. I think I have no tolerance for anything horror or scary, but I have very strong love of 80s nostalgia. So (laughs) multiple friends encouraged me to give it a try. And I think the first two episodes were just painful, but by the third, I was totally sucked in and enjoying myself thoroughly. So why do you think it's been so successful? You know, that's really interesting. And again, I'd have to see the seasons two and three, which I'm excited to do. I think It really is an incredibly unique story. And once you realize that there's not going to be a lot of, I think the the bark is worse than the bite. It Mm -hmm. sounds like it's going to be incredibly traumatic for women and children, but then the creativity of the show and of the writers and of the actors kicks in. And it's, it's almost like a fairy tale one of the original dark fairy tales, but so creative, so much creativity. Yeah. And I originally, I'm also not a person who likes horror or gore or any of that, but I watched it because I was at the time I was working with undergraduate college students when the first season came out and they were like, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. So I did. And I was instantly hooked. And again, probably the eighties nostalgia as well, based on my age. (laughs) Yeah, so my students convinced me to watch it, and I loved it and got hooked. But I'm curious what character you would relate with the most. Oh, wow. Well, I think because of my age, it's probably Winona Ryder's character. I've only seen one season, so I might not get the names right. Because I am a mother, you know, and that's what made it so painful for me at the first. I just can't even put myself in the shoes of having, I guess, spoiler alert, seemingly lost my child and yet being convinced that he's here and there's no way I can get to him. That is just too painful. to <laughs> But oh, the kids are just so much fun. I love Eleven. Right. Um, 
I love Will. Their names are not even going to come to mind, but the kids are just so much fun. And I think the chemistry between all the characters is wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great show. And I, I love how you referred to it as sort of the first dark fairy tale. And I think there are those themes in Stranger Things of, of hope in the midst of darkness. And there's the underground, right? Spoiler alert, too. Uh, the underground is very much the wilderness. Um, yes. In that place of despair and not being able to, to see the way out. But knowing there is there is a way out, it's just, where is it? Yes. Anyway, well done. But yeah, I love Stranger Things um, a little bit too much, maybe. But <laughs> so finally, then we like to conclude with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture, song or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately? And can you share as well why it resonates with you at this time? Yes, I love that question. The song by Hillsong, So Will I. I think I'm a late a late adopter of this song. I've, I know it's been playing for at least a year and a half, but I just stumbled on it maybe about a month ago. And I was struck by how the arc of this song follows so much the heart of All Shall Be Well of the book that I've just written. And so I have been listening to it on repeat as I've been going through this launch season of the book. The first words of the song are, God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. With no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and you fleshed out the wonders of light. And my book begins with the words, when the curtain rises for the very first time, the gardener is alone on the stage. He's kneeling in the dirt, digging hands into the soil, planting a garden. And then this song goes on from God creating out of nothing to this whole world being created and how amazing and vast and wonderful it is with God's promises embedded and God's presence here in the midst of all of it and God's creatures. And there's a, a part in the middle that says, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. For if everything exists to lift you high, so will I. Uh, and it goes on like that. And I think that's also what the middle of my book is trying to say, is that God created this world full of wonder that is praising him. And we can listen to that song and we can join in it. And then it ends talking about God's salvation, chasing down our hearts through our failures, through our pride, dying, rising again, giving his life and through his resurrection recreating everything and it ends with what measure could amount to your desire you're the one who never leaves the one behind and so I feel like the entire gospel arc is in this song and it's the same magnificent song that I've tried to capture in this book so that's the song slash poem that I've been playing on repeat in the past month even though it came out two years ago I just found it Nice. I'm actually not familiar with it. I don't think either. Maybe if I heard it, I would recognize the melody, but it's new to me. But definitely, as you said, it ties in so well with the theme of your book and, of course, the gospel as well. So yes. thank you for sharing about that. I'll have to give it a listen. Well, thank you again, Catherine, for being on the podcast. And if people wanted to connect with you, where can they find you on the internet or wherever? 
you can come to my website, katherinemcneil.com. Just make sure you spell McNeil correctly. It's M-C-N-I-E-L. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I shouldn't be too hard to find. That would be great. I'd love to continue the conversation with anyone listening. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.